Jill and I uh, had the privilege of going to Germany this past summer, or this summer, and uh, we um, went into southern Germany and even into Austria, and I'd never even been to Europe before, so I, I was privileged to be able to go. And uh, we went to Salzburg. Salzburg is in Austria, and it is the birthplace of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And he was born in 1756. And this music that you are hearing, he composed before the age of eight. Now just listen to this for a minute. Is there more to it? He was like five to eight years old when he wrote this music. And it is intricate, it is detailed. And uh, when I first heard this, I was in one of the museums listening, and his piano's there. And they're like, yeah, he played this music on his piano when he was eight years old. And I'm like, this is crazy. This guy was an absolute genius. He was an absolute genius. And I was totally fascinated by him. But then I was thinking about people in general, and I have to confess, I am actually fascinated by people. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to be fascinating. Um, people come in all different shapes and sizes. People come in all different personalities. We all have our own unique story to tell. And people are just amazing. And I, I, it's not uncommon for me to say when I'm sort of excited about how cool people are that I just say I, I, I love being a human being. I just love being a human. I mean, dogs can't appreciate us like we can appreciate us, right? People are amazing. You know, we were... a when we were in Germany, uh, there was something else that kind of struck me. Uh, we were there with some friends. Jill has this friend that she's had since she was 13. She was a pen pal of hers when she was 13. They remain friends to this day. So Jörg and Sabina are our friends that we spent time with there in Germany. And I, it, I, it struck me how much these friends of ours hang out with their friends, with their like adult friends. Like, like they take the time to be together. Like when they're doing stuff, they do it together. Like they really invest in relationships with one another. They take the time to love each other well. And I'm looking at you guys and I, I know that a, a, a number of years ago when I went to Ethiopia, same thing with the people in Ethiopia. It's like they hang out with each other. Like they like being around one another. They, they spend time to build relationships with each other. And I, I, it's just... If I'm just sort of assessing, maybe it's just me, maybe it's not you, but if I'm assessing, I think here, we, it's like we're so busy, you know, going here and going there, doing this and doing that. It's like we don't take the time to invest in relationships. I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've got schedules to keep. We've got things to do. We've got places to go. We've got deadlines to meet. We, we just don't seem to invest in loving well with one another like I see in the other places that I go around the world. Well, we're in this series that the young lady earlier got right called Brave. And it's a study through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, this morning we are going to see what does it take to love well? What kind of bravery do we need to really maybe make some changes in our life? in order to really invest in relationships the way that God wants us to invest in relationships. 
this book of Nehemiah was written by Nehemiah. It's all about Nehemiah and his experiences. And, and uh, Nehemiah was headlong into a project. If you've been with us, you know that he was building, he was leading this charge to build the wall around the inner city parts of the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and things were going fast. They were going well. Things are going great. When all of a sudden there was um, this dilemma that he had to address. And he had to ask this question. Do I push forward with getting this project done, this wall done, or do I stop the project and deal with this people issue? Do I put people before projects? Are people more important than this project that, that I came here to accomplish? Well, he chose people over the project. He to chose to stop the project and focus on the issue. And when we look at how he focused on this issue, we're going to see how he communicated that he loved these people, why he stopped the project to love on these people, and how he didn't just do this one time, but he actually lived it out in his life. And hopefully we'll gain insights for our own life. So for those of you who may have, may have missed it, if maybe you're here visiting or you haven't been with us, let me just kind of get us all up to speed here. Uh, Nehemiah came to Jerusalem for seemingly one big reason, and that was to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem to keep the people safe in their capital city. See, people were coming back from, the Jews were coming back from exile, and uh, they were filling up the population of Israel. A lot, a lot of Jews were there, but they weren't safe from their enemies around them, and so he was going to build this wall to keep them safe. But uh, right in the middle of this built, rebuilding of the wall, it's in full swing, this people issue came up. So let's figure out what that people issue is and see how Nehemiah can teach us how to invest in loving each other well. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's fine. We all have it up here on the screen. If you have your Bibles, go to Nehemiah. We're now in chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. It says, now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. So the struggles that they were having up until this point with building the wall is all the people outside of the city. All the enemies around them were trying to intimidate them. They're trying to stop them from building the wall. And, uh, and, and now it's no longer an issue of those people out there. Now they're dealing with us in here. It's like internal struggles, struggles with one another. And here's the struggle, verse 2. For there were those who said, we, are sons, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So that's one group. And then there's this other group. There were others who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the, uh, because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children, like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. So if you have a major debt that you owe, one of the ways to pay that debt was to sell your family into slavery. And here specifically, the daughters seem to have some sort of extra level of bondage. Probably it had to do with if you sell your daughter into slavery, she could, the person that owns her could actually marry her, force her into marriage, or use her as a concubine, and that might have been what was going on. 
And we're helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So there's this one group, seen in verse 2, where they're kind of hoarding it. You know, the food, food is short, and they're kind of hoarding it, and they're using their children as pawns, you know? Well, hey, we got to feed our kids. That's why we're keeping all this grain to ourselves. And then there's this other group that says, yeah, well, we have kids too. I mean, our children are like your children, but we're not as rich as you. We can't handle, you know, we're not in this upper class type of, of environment, and, and we're having to mortgage our, our fields and our houses just in order to survive. And this heavy, heavy tax that the Persian Empire puts on us, I read one commentary where they think it's a 60 to 70% tax. I mean, this heavy burden, we can't get out from underneath it, and we're having to sell our kids into slavery just to survive. This is not right. This was absolutely wrong. And Nehemiah, instead of pressing on, we got to get this wall done, he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. We have got to address this people issue because it's always people before projects. And he addresses it because, and we'll see this in your outline in, in your bulletin there, uh, the first thing we're going to see is that if we do not have love, then any project or any vision or any mission or anything that we're trying to accomplish, if we do not have love, it's worth nothing. It means nothing. You can try and accomplish huge things, but if we're not loving one another, it really means nothing. That's, that's what the Apostle Paul actually wrote. Uh, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and know the mysteries and all the no, and all all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I can give, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Loving one another is paramount. Loving one another must be our supreme focus. It must be of highest importance to us. Love is so critical. It is God's supreme focus on us. And therefore, with God's supreme focus of love toward us, we then must love each other. And I got to tell you, it's not easy. It's easy to talk about. It's harder to live. I mean, loving one another well takes energy. Loving one another means we have to reprioritize our lives. Loving one another well really is the hardest thing to master. I think that's why the Apostle Peter wrote these words in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, Peter writes these words. He says, above all, above everything else, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That phrase, keep fervent in your love. Uh, it means to put that extra energy and intensity and determination to make sure that we're loving well. I picture it this way. Um, if you've ever been to a track meet, like you watch track in the Olympics or something and you've got that 100 meter dash and those sprinters are absolutely, you know, like lightning when they're running. 
or any athlete really, but let's just take this race of, of, uh, of a 100-meter dash. You know, the, the guys get down and they're in their blocks, or the ladies they get down, they're in their blocks, and the gun goes off, and they just go at it. And they are running just as fast as they can. I mean, their legs, their arms, they are just flying as fast as they can. And you're watching them, and that camera along the, you know, the thing is just zipping along with them. They're going as fast as they can. And then what do they do at the very end of the race? I mean, they are giving it their all, right? They're going as fast as they can. What do they do at the very end? At the very end, when they're booking along, they give it that little extra push, you know, to get past uh, over, the, over the finish line. Or you take a long jumper, you know, those long jumpers. They're running down that track. They're giving it all they got. They got that board there. They hit that board and they jump, right? They've ran as fast as they possibly can. They've given all the effort that they can. They get into the air. Now it's just a matter of floating, you know, until they land. I mean, they could just kind of go, woo! But what do they do when they're in the air? When, they, when they're in the air, they don't just kind of land. They like stretch out as far as they can to basically get as far as they can onto that, onto that sand. That extra effort, that extra push when we're giving it our all, that's what it means to be fervent. Work hard at loving each other well, and when we've given it our all, give it even more. Be fervent in our love for one another. Because if we do not have love, anything we do is just really a waste of time. The way we go about loving one another really starts, I think, with what comes out of our mouth. <laughs> I love the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 34. He said, for, for the mouth speaks out of which fills the heart. The mouth, whatever comes out of our mouth, we've got to fill our heart so that what comes out of our mouth is the right stuff. And so, I would put it this way, straight out of the Scriptures, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Now, that phrase really uh, demands an explanation because we have to find out what the truth is. Because we might evaluate stuff and think that we're seeing it in a truthful way, but maybe we're not. And so, this is how Nehemiah did it. We have to see things clearly. To speak the truth in love, we've got to see things clearly. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 6. It says, Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers. By the way, that word contended with, um, it can be understood as uh, conducted a legal case against or brought a lawsuit against. That's why I think, uh, and I think that's the most accurate here. Uh, that's why I like the English Standard Version's translation in this uh, verse because they say, I brought charges against. I think that's more true to the original language of Hebrew. And he brought charges against. He took a legal case against the nobles and the rulers. But then I read the first part of verse 7, and I, was, I found myself being a, a little bit like taken aback by it. He gets all angry, and he says, and I consulted with myself. Now normally, when we've got an issue, you know, when we've got something we're struggling, when we're kind of angry, we want to like seek wise counsel, right? We want to like go out there and, and, and ask others, you know, like, okay, how should I handle this? But here he just consults with himself. It's like, you know, I really don't need anybody else. I'll just kind of consult with myself. I'll come up with my own idea of exactly what's right, and then I'll, I'll, I'll act upon it. 
So it troubled me a little bit. It just didn't seem right. And so I did a little digging. I did a little language digging, and I think I understand exactly what's going on here. Um, this phrase, consult with myself, it's, it's actually one Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and it's the only place that this Hebrew word is found. So I had to do even more digging than just in the Bible. And there's extra biblical writings, ancient writings, Hebrew writings, where this word is found. And, and two different understandings of it or translations of it. One way to translate it is, my heart took counsel upon it. In other words, I, I just sought, looked into my heart on this one. And then the second one, which I think really helps us understand this, is, is, is it's, it's understood as, I mastered my feelings. He's really, really angry, and he had to master his feelings. He couldn't let the feelings drive it. Um, when, we, when, when love is far from our hearts, when, when we maybe get angry, you know, like Nehemiah was angry, we have to master our feelings. We've got to make sure, hey, am I aligned in my heart with what God wants for my heart. A couple of days ago, uh, Friday, I was, um, Friday, Friday for me, by the way, is like the busiest day of the week. Friday, I'm like, you know, getting my PowerPoint ready. I'm making sure the outline is all set. Friday, I'm working really hard to try and wrap up my sermon, get it all together so that I don't have to spend as much time on Saturday on my sermon, you know. And so I'm working really hard on Friday, and I had to run an errand. Normally, don't run errands on Fridays, but I had to run an errand on Friday, so I thought, well, I, you know, I got to eat, so I might as well, like, eat and go, and, 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 and I decided, well, I'm going to go, and then I'm going to come back and eat. And so I, I went to run this errand, which was only going to take me you know, 15 minutes quickly, and I was driving um, north of Holy Family Memorial. And uh, I was actually planning on turning right near Burger Boat, you know, right there, that little, little jog there next to Burger Boat. And uh, I get just past uh, Holy Family Memorial. I'm coming over the bridge, over the river, and I'm driving along. I got my hands on 10 and 2, just so that you know. Driving along, and all of a sudden, boom! I, I, I like get hit from the back. And I'm like, what? What? I mean, I'm not even like at a stop sign or anything. I'm just, you know, and it's a, you got two lanes. Why did I get hit, right? And I get hit, and then this SUV comes by me, and sure enough, the front bumper is all banged up, and the front quarter panel is all banged up. I mean, I got like bumped, you know, pretty hard. And, uh, and the, the SUV goes ahead of me, and, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, they'll pull over, and, and we'll kind of resolve this, and I could probably even, you know, maybe still turn right, you know, at Burger But they like, keep driving. They don't even pull over. They're in the left lane. They keep driving. And I'm like, for a split second, I'm like, okay, I can't turn right and go where I need to go. I've got to like follow this car because they're not pulling over. So I'm following the car. Well, then we get up on top of that bridge, you know, that hill. You're all tracking with me, those of you who know Manitowoc. So I'm at the top of the bridge kind of across from the Evergreen Cemetery and, uh, and they finally pulled over. It was like a quarter mile later, right? And and I'm kind of like, I can't believe they weren't going to pull over. I, I was like, I can't believe they, they were going to like just keep going. That's kind of what was going through my mind. And so they get out of their car. I get out of my car. I'm thinking, okay, we'll resolve this. You know, we'll figure this out. And the first thing out of their mouth is, you swerved into me. <sighs> you know, now, now this has moved to a new level. And this is the truth. This is the truth. I was just working through 
this study on mastering your feelings. And I can feel the anger. Even as I'm telling you, I can feel the anger level going up again. And I said, no, I did not swerve. Yes, you swerved. I did not swerve. Well, we called the police. They didn't even want to call the police. I'm like, no, we're calling the police. We called the police. They tell us to pull into Evergreen Cemetery. They'll be right there. So, so we pull into the Evergreen Cemetery. And as I got back in my car, I honestly was thinking immediately, I have got to consult with myself. <laughs> I have got to master my feelings. But I have something that Nehemiah doesn't highlight. I have the Holy Spirit in me. And I did honestly pray, Lord, calm me down. Lord, calm me down. And I just felt this, okay, I'm totally calm. It's okay. It's going to work itself out. And I think that's important that when we think, you know, we, we can get angry. We can get frustrated. We can be mad. And things kind of hit us, you know. But if, if we're going to see things clearly, we can't let our emotions cloud it. We've got to master our feelings. We've got to consult with ourselves. We've got, and, and we do it by prayer. We do it by relying on the Spirit of God in us to bring us to a place where, okay, God, it's going to be okay. I, I, it's it's going to be all right. So, we see things clearly, and then we can speak the truth in love. That's what Nehemiah did. Again, verse 7. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the, and the rulers, and said to them, you are exacting usury. That means you're lending money, and you're charging a huge amount of interest on it, and this is wrong. And then he adds, each from his brother, each from your fellow Jews. Now the reason why he says this is because the Jews would have known that the Bible over and over and over again, the instructions of the Lord to them, like in Exodus 22-25, and in Leviticus 20, I wrote it here, 25, 35 through 37, and in Deuteronomy 15, and in Deuteronomy 23, and over and over again, the Bible is clear. God says, listen, you can lend money to your fellow Jews, but you cannot, uh, you cannot charge interest. So you can lend money, but you, you cannot charge interest. So he's saying this is absolutely against what God wants. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? By the way, here's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, everybody's coming back from exile. And those of us who are able to do it, we're buying them out of slavery so that they can come back here to live in Israel. And what are we doing? We're putting them right back under slavery to us. This is not right. And at the end of verse 8, it says, Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. You got us. That's exactly right. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? In other words, listen, the, the people around us are watching. The, the people around us are watching. Do they see that we're loving each other? Do they see that there's something different about our relationships with one another? He's saying if we're treating our fellow brothers and sisters, our, our fellow Jews this way, the world is watching. And they're watching us as well. Nehemiah spoke the truth in love because he saw clearly 
what was going on. And if we're going to speak the truth in love, then we've got to make sure we see things clearly. And then secondly, then we can remove specks and logs. (laughs) Now when I have this specks and logs, for some of you it might make you think, didn't Jesus say something about logs and specks and stuff like that? Yeah, that's what I wanted it to do. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 3. Jesus says these words. He says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When Nehemiah was trying to see things clearly, this is exactly what he did. Go back to Nehemiah 5 and verse 10. It says, And likewise I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Nehemiah is saying, I am in the same boat. I've been lending money and I've been charging high interest. I have a log in my own eye. I realize this. I'm admitting this to you guys. And then verse 11. Here's the solution. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. By the way, it's just... Oh, it's just such music to my ears when I hear that. They didn't argue. They didn't make excuses. They didn't point fingers at other people. They say, yeah, we own it. You're absolutely right, and we're going to make it. We're going to change our ways. So I called the priests and took an oath for that, from them that they would do according to this promise. In other words, let's make this legal. Let's make this binding. We're doing this publicly before the priests. This is going to be this legal case that we agree to. Verse 13, I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. So be it. Ah, we agree. And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. You know, one of the greatest ways that you and I can love well is when we own our own log. (laughs) And we're not so busy trying to get the specks out of other people's eyes, but we make sure that we own the log in our own eyes. And when we see that, yep, yep, that's, it's true about me, then we don't try to blame someone else. We don't try to make an excuse for it. That we just own it like Nehemiah owned it and like these people owned it, these rich people owned it. To be fervent in love, to be fervent in love, we've got to look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and ask ourselves these questions. Things like, how have I lacked fervency of love? How have I not put forth the effort that love demands? How have I avoided leaning into loving well? How have I not given relationships enough of me, enough of my time, enough of my energy? How have projects 
been more important to me than people? What log do I see in my eye? Well, this isn't just a one-time deal, you know, where it's like, okay, well, we did that, now let's move on and keep going. This, this became a lifestyle for Nehemiah. This, he, he made a change, and he didn't go back. And I think we can learn from him. And uh, the way that we live according to like Nehemiah is I think what the Apostle Paul highlighted in Romans 12.9. I say this, let love be without hypocrisy. Let our love not be sort of like, well, we'll love in this situation this way and then in a different situation we won't love. Or, or you know, being two-faced, like I'm smiling at you, I'm loving you, but I'm hating you. Or, you know, uh, or being fake with our love or putting up some sort of facade with our love. Look at how Nehemiah demonstrated this. Verse 14, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. Let me just stop a moment. Here's what happened. The scenario was leading up to this was when he became governor. This was right toward the beginning there when this big issue broke out. And now we fast forward ahead 12 years. So now all of a sudden we're 12 years out from that scenario. And he's saying, listen, ever since we made that promise, for the last 12 years I've been living that promise and I want you to know it. Verse 15, But former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which we was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And one in, once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. So that might sound like a lot, but you've got to realize he's like the prime minister of Israel. He's like the head of state. And he's saying, listen, I realize there's a lot of food, there's a lot of wine going on here, but this is part of the role. I'm entertaining officials, leading officials. I've got heads of state coming here. I've, this is just the role that I have, but I just want to be really clear with you that this is what I had to do. But then he adds at the end of verse, uh, verse 18, Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. I didn't tax you in order to pay for my meal. I, uh, when I was studying this, I, I remembered, I told, I've told you guys in the past, one of my favorite magazines is National Geographic. And, and as I was reading that and studying that, I'm like, you know, I remember a National Geographic from a while back that talked about the presidency. And so I did a little archive search, and sure enough, January 2009, there's an article in that National Geographic magazine called Inside the Presidency. And it's like, what goes on, on at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue you know, the White House, when the president's there. Like, what's the behind-the-scenes stuff? And it was fascinating. And there was a section on there about eating. <laughs> and that the president uh, and his family have their private chef. And there's a whole, actually, crew of chefs that, like, cook. And so, like, when heads of state come in, state dinners, when uh, uh, state dinners, that is, when um, 
when they have a barbecue on the lawn for all the congressmen and stuff, when they, when they have holiday meals, all of these kinds of things, whenever they're entertaining people, uh, that comes out of your and my pocket. <laughs> Taxpayers pay for all of that. What's interesting that I found, I found peculiar, though, is it says in that article, but, um, but feeding their family or any personal guests comes out of the president's own pocket. Like the chef will cook the meal, but then the president has to pay for it. And uh, it says there that every president has like this sticker shock the first month of their presidency realizing how much it costs to feed their family there in the White House that they have to pay for. And Nehemiah is basically saying, listen, I realize that there's a lot of food that's being prepared here and that we're eating like this, but you need to know that you, the taxpayers, are not paying for it. Matter of fact, I'm paying for it out of my own money. Now, how he did that, I'm not sure. He was the governor. He was answerable to the emperor of the Persian Empire. No doubt he got paid by the empire, empire to do it. Or when he came over to Jerusalem, remember he came with all of this stuff, like, like King Artaxerxes gave him a ton. So like he had wealth there, but he's saying, out of my own wealth, I'm paying for all of this stuff. Like Nehemiah, if we're going to put people before projects and love genuinely, if we are going to love without hypocrisy, then we must practice what we preach. Practice what we preach. We don't put up a facade. We, we live it. You know? we, don't just, we don't just love with words, but we love with deeds. We, we, we don't just sort of have this, what we look like on the outside, but on the inside there's some other junk going on. Our actions must align with our words, and this takes, must take our focus and our energy. Now, candidly, honestly, here at Faith, I speak for the leadership. They are, and I am, passionately longing for us to break down the walls, to be transparent, to create an environment where it's gracious and kind, to be able to uh, love without hypocrisy. To be able to love in truth. To be able to love well. To be honest with one another. And so, in putting forth this kind of energy, what we have done is we've, we've said, well, let's create environments where we can grow. Where we can kind of get past the things that get in our way of loving each other well. That's why, that's why we've, we've had these biblically centered groups like character development. I've gone through character development. It is biblically centered and uh, it's solid. Um, Journey groups, also biblically centered, but journey groups to help us sort of get at, well, what what is it about me that kind of gets in the way of loving well? What is it how how people receive me that kind of gets in the way of really connecting on a deeper level? And these kinds of groups are offered... uh, periodically throughout the year. Actually, it's, it's going to be offered again in September on both of those levels. And so what you want to do is go on our website and uh, faithchurchmanswalk.org and on the top bar, there's a, there's a thing that says counseling. Click on counseling, drop down menu comes, click on character development or click on journey. Get, get the information you need. Look at it. Figure it out. But that's not the only way to do it. Uh, a core ministry to love each other well, a central ministry to love each other well, is what we call home discipleship groups. Now, I don't know if you're in a home discipleship group or not, also known as small groups, 
but it's where we, we just get to know each other and we have Bible study together. We, uh, for my group or other groups, I know a lot of them do sermon-based discussions. So you hear the sermon and you come and you kind of dissect it. You go a little deeper than what I'm allowed or able to go deeper uh, here. So you get together in your home discipleship groups and you meet with one another on a regular basis and you grow in love for one another. You go below the surface with one another. You really get to know each other. While you're there on the website, just go over to Ministries. Click on Ministries. You'll see Home Discipleship Groups. Click on that. Get plugged into a Home Discipleship Group if you haven't already done so. And then there'll be right in that same tab under Ministries, you'll see Men's Offerings and Women's Offerings. Maybe a Men's Bible Study or a Women's Bible Study. So many opportunities for us to connect with one another. Because we have to connect with one another if we're going to grow together. And then, not only connecting with one another, but then... But then uh, we need to serve alongside one another where we're, we're all involved in, in growing, which is another thing that we need to do. We need to grow in what it means to love each other and to love the Lord well. And then together we go out into the world. It's called our growth pathway. Connect, serve, grow, and go. We do this together, loving one another all the way. Well, one more point before we wrap it up here. And that is when we're loving, we must do it for the right reasons. When we're loving, we've got to love for the right reasons. I mean, sometimes you think, why, why am I putting the effort into this? You know, why am I doing this? We've got to do it for the right reasons. Look at the very last verse of Nehemiah 5, verse 19. He ends this way. He says, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing this for them. Ultimately, God, I'm doing it for you. I want to do this for you. And he's been saying this all throughout this whole chapter. Let's jump back to verse 9 when he's motivating them, you know. And he says, should, not, should you not walk in the fear of our God? Shouldn't that be our focus? And then down in verse 13, when, when he's challenging them and he's, they've signed this agreement, they've made, took this oath, and then he gives this warning in the middle of verse 13, thus may God shake out every man. Like, you've got to deal with God on your heart and what you're all about. And then at the end of verse 13, when they're all agreeing to it, it says, and the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. It's not like we're praising ourselves, you know? It's not like we're saying, hey, we're doing this because we're so awesome. We want God to receive the praise. We want God to receive the glory. And then one more place there in verse 15. He says at the end of verse 15, when, when he's talking about all those bad governors that went before him and all the bad things they did, he says, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. We put people before projects. We love people well. Because one day we got to answer to God. We do this to revere Him. We do this to love Him. The right reason to love well is not for me, but for thee. Well, I can go on and on, of course. Of course I can go on and on. I love to preach. You can come in and you can you know, sing good songs and we can, we can uh, hear a sermon and go, well, you know, he made some good points. I mean, that was really a nice sermon. And uh, we can leave here and be the same. We can leave here and go, well, that was good. You know, and, and we leave and, and, we don't, and nothing ever changes. I mean, he made some good points, but nothing's different. Let me ask you, how, how has God been pluck in your heart as you've heard the truth of the Word of God. Has the Holy Spirit stirred anything in any of us? Like, 
Maybe a scenario, maybe a relationship that's, that's stressed, maybe, maybe something that, that we have to make right. The Bible calls us to repentance. I'm going in this direction. This is wrong. I know in my mind, I changed my mind, I, my body follows. Now I'm going in this direction. What is it that, that is, that about, that's about our relationships that needs to change? What is it about loving others that God wants us to leave here and go, you know what? From this point forward, like Nehemiah, from this point forward, I'm going to live differently. People can be challenging, honestly. It's challenging to love well. It does take a lot of energy. But I still contend that people are beautiful. <laughs> people are amazing. People are... They're, they're fascinating, really. And you don't have to be a genius or famous to be interesting. We're all interesting, actually. You and me. Well, I think you're interesting. I don't know how you feel about me. But we're just everyday people, you know? We're nothing special. There's nothing different about us. I mean, we're just kind of normal people. And God is calling us to be fervent, to give it that extra effort to love one another. To go with all we have and then go a little bit more even. Because if we have not love, anything that we're involved in, anything that we're doing, it really doesn't matter. 